Justice to who? The Gentiles. In his name, who will have hope? The Gentiles. It's amazing. It's all part of God's plan. And Paul is quoting this for us once again to show us God's merciful purposes of election. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, it is a privilege to open God's Word with you this morning and out of the book of Romans. We're going to finish Romans 9 today. Uh, Pastor Pilgrim is away this weekend. He is uh, at the moment in uh, Colorado, and he went there to be part of the Expositors Collective, and that is something, uh, uh, a meeting a couple times a year uh, that teaches, teaches men to teach expositionally, verse by verse, through God's Word. Uh, and he's also guest uh, preaching at a church there in Colorado this morning. And then tomorrow he's headed to California for a couple days to take part in his seminary courses. So he'll be back next week. Uh, but as we begin this morning, let's just be reminded, as we often need to be, that this is the very Word of God that we hold in our hands. God created us, and he created the universe And as creator, he has authority to mold his creation, to mold the clay, like we learned last week, to mold his creation for his purposes. And we thank him that he has not stayed silent. He did not create the world and then leave. No, he has given us his word. And his his word has authority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We know that his word is sufficient, meaning that we have everything we need, everything we need in these pages for life and godliness. We know that his word is inerrant and infallible. That means that it's absolutely true and we can trust it. It's totally trustworthy. And we know that the word of God is active for today. It's alive, it's powerful, it's living, it's cleansing, it's nourishing, and it's sanctifying. So may the Holy Spirit direct our thoughts, and our hearts this morning. May the Lord direct our lives as we finish Romans chapter 9 that culminates in a stone that was laid in Zion. Let's just pray together as we begin. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would teach us. We know that you are here among us. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand your words. Not just to understand, but to make a lasting imprint on our hearts that would change us, guide us, direct our lives. Lord, we ask that you would conform us to your word, conform us to the image of your son, Jesus, this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us through the end of chapter 8 into chapter 9, you'll remember that we ended chapter 8 with a great proclamation, a great declaration of our assurance, the assurance of our salvation. If it is our all-powerful, unchanging, all-knowing, always existing God that has brought about our salvation, if it is controlled by him and kept by 
by the work of Jesus, if we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, then absolutely nothing, as we read, absolutely nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we came into chapter 9, we once, once again see Paul responding to questions that his Jewish audience, his Jewish Christians had. They said, Paul, if salvation had been extended to the Gentiles, if obeying the law does not make us righteous before God, and if nothing can separate us from the love of God, then where does that leave the nation of Israel? Where does that put us? Has God not kept his promises? And Paul responds, as we see in the first couple verses, with unceasing anguish and great sorrow for his countrymen. And we'll see in chapter 10 that his heart's desire is for them to be what? Saved. He desires that they would be saved. But in the, in the middle of this, he's saying, you've got the definition of Israel all wrong. It has nothing to do with your ancestry and your lineage. It has nothing to do with trying to keep the law with all your might. It has everything to do with my mercy and compassion, God's mercy and compassion, graciously extended to those who I draw to myself. And we see this, didn't we? We see this in God's sovereign choice of Abraham and the entire nation of Israel, but also in how God guided the line of Christ in choosing Jacob over Esau, in how he worked in the heart and actions of Pharaoh in order that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth, in all the nations. And our response to this, as Paul reminds us, our response to this should not be to bring God down to our level and to judge him as we would judge another human being or to adopt even a fatalistic view of life and throw up our hands and say, well, what does it matter for who can resist his will? Absolutely not. We would do well to listen to Paul's rebuke when he says, who are you? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? He is the creator. We are the creation. Our response is humble worship. Our response is thanksgiving. Our response is trust in his purposes. All the while grateful that he has extended mercy to us as we ended verse 24 last week. Vessels of mercy that is, he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And we're going to see today that God extends mercy in spite of rejection. And we'll see that Israel's rejection of Christ does not deny the faithfulness of God. Romans 9 does not cancel out Romans 8. Not at all. God is always faithful. He's righteous and just. And we can trust that he will always accomplish his purposes and keep his promises. I really appreciated Pastor Pilgrim's uh, exhortation to us uh, and insight on deconstructionism last week. It was very helpful. Uh, the encouragement to us not to push back from the table, as he said, but to lean in all the more to God's word and to build each other up in our faith. 
And there's a great resource uh, on progressive Christianity uh, and deconstructionism, and it's the film American Gospel, Christ Crucified. It's the second American Gospel film. If you haven't seen it, I really encourage you uh, to check it out. It's very, very well done, uh, very interesting, and they tackle this whole idea of progressive Christianity, deconstructionism. They have people on both sides. They have very, very liberal, liberal so-called Christians who they interview, and then they have solid Bible-believing pastors uh, and teachers um, that come in, and they give just a really great response, really great tools and resources to combat uh, this that is happening in the church today. So check out American Gospel, the second one. But we're finishing chapter 9 today, and we're looking at, like Derek read, verses 25 through 33. And remember, the focus on this section of Romans, it's all on God and his purposes. So in light of that, I have two main points in this section, if you would like to take notes. Just two this morning. Uh, number one, we're going to see God's mercy through rejection in verses 25 through 29. And then number two, we're going to see God's path to righteousness in verses 30 through 33. And I've titled the message, A Stone in Zion. And when we come to an end today, we'll see that this all hinges on the work of Christ. And there are only two responses to it. Will you stumble over this rock or will you believe and cling to it? Of course, our hope is that it is the latter, that you are believing and clinging to it. So, number one, God's mercy through rejection. And we finished with verse 24 and saw that it was applied even to us whom he has called from the Gentiles. But now, Paul's going uh, to call uh, and go back, call some witnesses from the Old Testament. He's going to go to five different passages. There are two from Hosea and three from Isaiah uh, to show that this has been in his sovereign plan from the beginning. Israel's rejection of the Messiah was foretold long ago, but God is still calling his people. He always will. So in verse 25 and 26, we see Paul paraphrasing Hosea 2.23 and quoting Hosea 1.10. He says, Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And so in order to understand the truth that Paul is teaching us here, let's turn over to the book of Hosea just for a moment. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 1. And we're going to read several verses here in Romans, or not Romans, Hosea chapter 1. Hosea, if you, haven't had, uh, if you haven't read through in a while, it's a very, very interesting book. really stands out uh, amongst the minor prophets with a very unique situation, a situation that we only see in this book, what the Lord had told Hosea to do. So Hosea chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 2 through 4, verse 6, and verse 8 through 10. So verse 2 says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Other translations say harlotry. And have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. 
So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little time, while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Verse 6, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. In verse 8 and 9, When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Let's stop there for a moment. So Hosea was told to marry Gomer, a prostitute and to stay married to her in spite of her adultery. Very unique. But Gomer's unfaithfulness to Hosea was a vivid picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And the children, the children that Gomer had, their names are representative of God's attitude towards Israel. The name Jezreel, it means God sows, S-O-W-S, like you would sow seeds. And that also refers back to the place where Jehu enacted God's judgment on the wicked king Ahab's sons. And you can read about that very interesting story. You can read that in 2 Kings 9 and 10. The name No Mercy in Hebrew, it's Lo Ruhama. And the name Not My People, it's Lo Ami in Hebrew. They were his chosen people, but they were very, very disobedient. And because of their disobedience, they would be scattered scattered like seeds, like sown seeds. And we see this happen in Israel's destruction and exile. The northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrian nation in 722 BC, and the southern kingdom would fall to who? Babylon, Babylon. exactly right, in 586 BC. Bless you, sir. Now, now look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Looking towards the future, what God will do Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Go back to Romans. In Hosea, he's looking to the future when the Israelites would come back to their land in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuild. But the amazing truth here is that Paul, he is describing this, he is applying this to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. And so we see that this was in God's plan the whole time. When God promised to Abraham back in Genesis that all nations on the earth would be blessed through him, this was in view. It's mercy in spite of rejection. The Messiah would come. The new covenant instituted. The door would be opened to the Gentiles. And mercy would even come to the Jews once again who rejected Christ. Through the blood of Christ, and he says that they shall be called the sons of the living God. What a statement that is. And it brings to mind John 1, 11 and 12. You know this. 
Where does it say? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. His own, the Jews, they rejected him, but his mercy was displayed to others in spite of this rejection. And just notice, how do we become children of God? It says, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of will of man, but by the will of God, by his will, not out of our own will. And so in order to show God's mercy in action, Paul reminds us of how God was working through the time of Hosea. But next, he goes to Isaiah. He asks Isaiah, who was a contemporary of Hosea, by the way, to testify on this. And so verse 27, he says, And as Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And so Paul here, he's quoting Isaiah 10.22 in chapter 1, verse 9. And the word in the Greek here for cries out is the term kratso. And it has the similar emotion that Paul does for his kinsmen in verse 2 of chapter 9. It means to cry out with great emotion as if you were in fear or pain. Sometimes it's even like a scream, a scream of agony. And the context of Isaiah's prophecy is very similar. It's the judgment on Israel that will come from the Assyrians because of their great wickedness. In Isaiah, we see hypocritical leaders. We see self-indulgence to the max. We see cynicism. And Isaiah is crying out in anguish over the sins of his people and for the truth that he had to tell them that they were going to be decimated fully and without delay, with only a small remnant remaining. And Israel was described as so great in number that they were like the sand of the sea. And that reminds us again of Abraham, doesn't it? God's promise that his descendants would be numerous as the what? The stars. The stars. Yet even in the midst of this great judgment, Isaiah often wrote encouraging words about what the Lord would do, how he would save a remnant out of his people. And of course, we know in Isaiah several times, in chapter 9, 42, 49, 52, and 53, we have the amazing prophecies about the coming Messiah, described as God's servant who will fulfill Israel's destiny by bringing justice to the nations and be a light to the Gentiles. This servant would suffer willingly for the sins of his people, and establish a new covenant between the Lord and his new people, the true Israel, called from every nation. Jesus Christ would be the victor. And later, at the very end of Isaiah, we see the Lord rewarding and vindicating him for what he had done. And of course, the New Testament identifies this servant as Jesus himself. In Matthew 12, we see this. And we just have to see this briefly. It's so good. Turn to Matthew 12. Matthew 12. Verse 15, I should be hearing rustling of pages. 
Matthew 12. There you go. That's better. Matthew 12, verse 15. Uh, Jesus, this is the passage where Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, of course, did not like that at all. It says in verse, verse 14 that they were conspiring against him, how to destroy him. And verse 15 picks up, and it says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known, as his time had not yet come. We see that often. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Here it is. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles." He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will have hope. Justice to who? The Gentiles. In his name who will have hope? The Gentiles. It's amazing. It's all part of God's plan. And Paul is quoting this for us once again to show us God's merciful purposes of election. He's saying, like he's been showing us throughout the book of Romans, there is none righteous. There is no one who keeps the law perfectly. We are all under the sentence of death. Come to Jesus, he's saying. Repent and believe. You Jews, oh, how I desire you all to believe. I want you to be part of this remnant. God in his mercy will always preserve a remnant. How I want you to understand who the true Israel is, the true people of God. Come, join the family. Join the family that the Lord has now widened to include many other ethnicities. And in speaking in, of the idea of a remnant, we see this in Scripture. R.C. Sproul, he points out that Scripture teaches that the vast majority of people that we see in God's Word will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says that we hope for a remnant even in the time in which we live now that will be in the kingdom. And Jesus warned us about this in Matthew 7, didn't he? When he says that we must enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and few will find the gate that leads to life. And Sproul goes on to say this. He says, what about the Christian church? Are we safe by virtue of our membership in the visible church? Paul has already taught that one is not a Jew outwardly, but inwardly. Receiving circumcision was not enough to get someone into the kingdom of God. Circumcision of the heart was necessary. The same applies to the Christian community. Church membership or receiving baptism is no guarantee of redemption. A true Christian is a Christian internally, not just externally. And we also see here in this passage the seriousness of God's judgment. It's described in verse 29. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. There's three, uh, three notes here that I want to bring out. First, God here is described as the Lord of hosts. In other trans translations, it says the Lord of Sabaoth. And it refers to God's all-encompassing lordship of the universe, of everything that he's created. And we sing this phrase 
in one of the greatest hymns ever written, Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It says, Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And this, this uh, name for God shows up about 261 times in the Old Testament. And it often also includes in those contexts the idea that he is the God of the armies of heaven. And David cried out during battle with Goliath. He says, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. God is the general of this army. But second, the Lord of hosts, it says, has left us offspring. Who is this offspring? Well, the Greek word here literally means seed. And Galatians 3.16 gives us some insight into this. Paul says here, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ. So Jesus is the singular offspring. And the passage goes on to explain that an inheritance was promised to Abraham's seed apart from the law. The inheritance that was given to Jesus was an inheritance of nations. And we see this in Psalm 2 and Psalm 82. But just as Abraham believed God and his faith was counted as righteousness, so are all today who believe in God's Son. They're justified apart from the law. So in this way, Abraham is the father of all who believe. We saw that in Romans 4. And then Galatians continues to give us insight. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So we see the Lord of hosts. We see who are the Lord of hosts' offspring. And third, we see Sodom and Gomorrah here. And we all know the story, of course, of how the Lord judged the wickedness of those cities and destroyed them. And yet, he showed mercy to a very small remnant, you could say, in Lot and his family. But even in this time when Paul is writing, Sodom and Gomorrah is used as an expression, as an analogy for total annihilation without a trace remaining. Only God's mercy and great grace has prevented him from enacting his just judgment on every person in the world. And so Paul, in quoting Isaiah, he gives praise to the Lord for his mercy, even in spite of Israel's rejection. And he says, thank you, Lord. We would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah if you were not faithful to your sovereign plan. But he is faithful. And so first we see that God extends mercy even through rejection, even through rejection. And then secondly this morning, we see God's path to righteousness. Look at verse 30 again with me. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So what shall we say then? In other words, what is our response to Paul's brief history here of the Israelite rejection? Well, he once again goes back to this familiar theme that we've seen 
that is so foundational to our understanding of the gospel. True righteousness. God's path to righteousness is reached by faith, by faith alone. And of course, he's not saying here that the Gentiles were saved on a different basis, not at all. But he's reiterating that the only way to attain the righteousness necessary for salvation has always been by faith. And the word pursue here is dioko in the Greek, and it means to run quickly after something. Uh, And it was sometimes used in a hunting context, run quickly after your prey. And it was also used in a metaphorical uh, context as well, metaphorical idea of running after a goal or objective. And it was, we see from earlier chapters, the Jews did not pursue righteousness by faith. They relied on their good works and reliance uh, in their obedience to God's law. And Romans makes it clear that God-given faith has always been what was needed. But not just in Romans, we see it in Hebrews 11 as well. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, the prophets. And it goes on. And Paul, of course, is not saying that the Gentiles also were naturally pursuing and seeking after God. It's clear that no one, of course, no Jew, no Gentile, naturally seeks after God. And the part of Paul's Roman audience here that were Gentiles, they would have had no interest, no interest in the law of Moses. They most likely would have been uninformed about God's history with Israel. But yet, in God's great mercy, they found what they were not pursuing. And isn't that the story of the gospel? I once was lost, but now I've found it. No, no, I once was lost, but now am found. I've been found by the Lord. Another old hymn, he sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, meaning we didn't know him. And all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Victory in Jesus. As you look at the history of the early church, you'll see that many more Gentiles believed compared to Jews who believed. And we've said this before, but the biggest obstacle to salvation is self-righteousness. The person that thinks that they are just all good with God because of their works will see no reason to get saved. And there's been poll after poll done over the years about this. Often in street witnessing, you've heard this question asked. When you die and stand before heaven and he asked you, on what basis should I allow you to enter heaven? What would you say? Now this question is not totally theologically correct because that answer, that decision is going to be made before we get to the pearly gates. We're not going to have a chance to try and convince God otherwise. But it gets us thinking. It gets us thinking, doesn't it? And the answer is, often come, well, I'm a pretty good person. I tried to live a good life. I went to church. I gave my money to disaster relief. I gave my money to the poor. I've never killed anyone. Very, very few people will answer, I actually have no right to enter heaven. I'm not a good person. 
but I have been washed by the blood of Jesus. So I can enter heaven because he's given me his righteousness. It's not based on my righteousness. It's based on his. And that's been the main point all the way through the book of Romans. What is God's path to righteousness? Not ours, but justification through the work of Christ. And that's the tragedy here of the Jewish nation. It was a wasted effort. Why? Well, verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled at the stumbling stone, the stone in Zion. And it's here that we need to return to Isaiah one more time. Verse 33 here is quoted from Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The Jews were very critical. They rejected the idea that the message of the gospel is grace through faith in Christ alone because it disqualified all their supposed good works that they had done, that they thought would please God. And the idea of the gospel being a stumbling stone is also mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. You probably remember 1 Corinthians 1, 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. How about 1 Peter 2, verse 7? So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Long before Jesus came, the Lord, through his prophets, predicted that Israel would reject him. Just like Isaiah said, they tripped over the stone of stumbling. They've refused to trust Jesus as her Savior. And as a result, the work of Christ is a great offense to works of self-righteousness. It's a great offense. We have the word Zion here as well. Zion is one of those words that we hear very often, but sometimes we need to be reminded of the meaning. In the Old Testament, uh, it was used for a, a couple things. Zion was used as a name for the city of Jerusalem. It was used uh, to describe the land of Judah, and it was described to describe the nation of Israel as a whole. And the word Zion is also used in a theological or spiritual sense in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's, it's referred figuratively to Israel as the people of God in Isaiah 60. In the New Testament, Zion refers to God's spiritual kingdom. Uh, in Hebrews, the apostle says, We have not come to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So it's used in a couple ways in God's word. But as we come to our last phrase here, we see that, that Paul doesn't leave us with Israel's unbelief. He ends the chapter with the good news of the gospel. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And we see him use the word shame here. Very interesting. We live in the West. We live in more of an innocence, guilt type of mindset. We see that in God's word as well. Very clear that we are guilty before him. But in the East, in the Middle East, they, they, the, those folks live more of a shame and honor society. And so, so we see both in God's word. The idea of being shamed, of losing face in Eastern countries is the worst thing that can happen to you. Not so much if you're innocent or guilty, but will it bring shame upon you and your family? 
And so we see this coming here. Those who believe in Christ will not be put to shame. And so I ask you the same question that I asked in the beginning. This all hinges on the work of Christ. There are only two responses. Will you stumble over this rock or believe and cling to it? I'm reminded, we've, we've sung two songs this morning, I think, from Sovereign Grace, haven't we? There's another song that, that makes me think of, we haven't sung it in a while, it's called Cling to Christ. And I think it captures the idea of this very well. It goes like this. Father, I can come to you and boast of deeds I've done. In my pride, I strive to earn the favor Christ has won. He alone pleads my acceptance, all my works aside. So I come with empty hands and I cling to Christ. It's more than I can do to keep my hold on you, but all my hope and peace is that you cling to me. Father, all my earthly aims and time will turn to dust. Let me learn that loss is gain for those who know your love. All the treasures of this world will never satisfy. You alone are endless joy, so I cling to Christ. And next week we'll start Romans 10, and we'll be continuing to look at more errors in Israel's understanding. But for this morning, how can we apply this text and summarize it? Summarize Romans 9 as a chapter. So two, we had two points this morning, also two points of application. Very simple. First, praise God for his mercy. In 1 Peter 1.3, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The response is to bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his name because he has caused us to be born again through the work of Christ. Uh, a devotional book that Katrina and I love is uh, the book New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. I think there's one copy in the back. Uh, it's a book filled with gospel truth, with great encouragement. It's been a blessing to us. Every page as you go through it, focus on the work of Christ. I think it would be very encouraging for you. Uh, pick up a copy. There's only one. Pick that copy up. <laughs> we can always order more. Uh, but we highly recommend New Morning Mercies. So first, praise God for his mercy. Second, pursue and cling to Christ. Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In our member covenant here at Shoreline, one of the, one of the points that we have agreed together is to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ through regular Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, and the practice of the spiritual disciplines. These are the means of grace that the Lord has given us, the means to encourage our faith, to grow us in our sanctification. As we are in his word, as we are communicating to him through prayer, as we are fellowshipping with one another inside and outside the church, and as we are serving together, these are the things that grow us. And this allows us to actively live out our faith, to put on Christ and make use of what these great things he's given to us. But as we are doing these things, at the same time, we are clinging 
to Christ, thankful for the faith that has been given to us, always going back to our hope in him, always relying on the Spirit to work in us in the midst of our weaknesses. Many in this world, you know, friends, many in this world pursue a righteousness that they will never attain. But we pursue Christ, not to be righteous, but out of love and thankfulness that his righteousness has been given to us. Praise God for his mercy. Pursue and cling to Christ. But as we wrap up this morning, how about Romans 9 as a whole? We've seen some amazing truths about who God is and how he has sovereignly worked through history. We've seen how he chose the Israelites as a nation, how he chose specific people like Pharaoh for his purposes, to see his glory displayed among the nations. We've learned who the true Israel is, and we've seen ourselves as well, how we are the clay and he is the potter, how it does not depend on our human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And how, in his mercy, we have now become one family, one people of God. But we've also tackled some hard questions as well, haven't we? Is God unjust? How can hell be fair if God is sovereign? If election is true, then isn't God cruel and uncaring? Overall, it's been encouraging to talk with some of you and hear some of your questions and your desire to unravel, in a sense, the question of God's sovereignty versus our responsibility. But let me just continue to encourage you in a couple ways. First, uh, it's important to know uh, that we cannot figure all of this out. Uh, But at the same time, we cannot question the wisdom of God. If you think it's unfair or... If you can't figure it out according to your own human reasoning, the problem is not with God. It's with you. Our brains are so small. They are. They don't, do not compare with the mind of God. And there is a bit of a mystery here as we look at these. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we throw up our hands in despair and just ignore it, not want to tackle these things. We must take God at his word. We must trust it, believe it, and not shy away from it. When God says in his word that in the end of Romans 8 that we are foreknown and predestined, we must believe it. When God says, when he tells us that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world or that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, we must believe that. When Jesus said that no one comes to me unless the Father draws him, we must believe that. And at the same time, we know that as the Father draws us, as the Holy Spirit regenerates us and opens our eyes, we respond, don't we? We respond with belief, with faith and repentance. And we'll see it even next week in Romans 10. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Warren Wiersbe said it well. He said, the fact that we cannot fully understand how They work together, does not deny the fact that they do. And I think Spurgeon words that uh, Pastor Pilgrim shared are true in regards to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He said, I never try and reconcile friends. It's true. But secondly, it's also important to evaluate our own attitudes and hearts when we're discussing these truths. Uh, Understanding God's sovereignty and our salvation, it should prompt joy thanksgiving, and worship, not anger, pride, judgment, or division. 
When you have a moment, go and read Ephesians 1 and 2 again. The proper response to these things is given to us. He says, all of this is for the praise of his glorious grace. That's what it's for. We praise him. We praise him. I love John Piper's testimony of how the Lord worked in his heart as he was studying Romans 9. Look at this. John Piper says, in essence, it it happened like this. I was 34 years old. I had two children and a third on the way. As I studied Romans 9 day after day, I began to see a God so majestic and so free and so absolutely sovereign that my analysis merged into worship. And the Lord said, in effect, I will not simply be analyzed, I will be adored. I will not simply be pondered, I will be proclaimed. My sovereignty is not simply to be scrutinized, it is to be heralded. It is not grist for the mill of controversy. It is gospel for sinners who know that their only hope is the sovereign triumph of God's grace over their rebellious will. The God of Romans 9 has been the rock-solid foundation of all I have said and all I have done in the last 22 years. What a testimony. So, friends, may we herald God's sovereignty. May we herald the gospel. And may we proclaim his glorious grace and mercy. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, what a privilege it is to sit under the teaching of your inerrant word this morning. Lord, we confess that these things at times are hard for us to understand. Our brains and our minds cannot capture the infinite majesty of who you are, your infinite knowledge and wonder, how you are in control of every atom to the largest thing in all of creation, Lord. You control it all. We can't fathom that, Lord. But you have given us your word, and you have given it for us to understand and to know it and to live by it. So we ask that you would grow us in that, Lord. Grow us in our understanding of the gospel. Grow us in our faith in you, Lord. Grow us in our love for you. Grow us in how we respond to one another as we discuss these deep truths of your word, Lord. This morning we know that you have saved us, that you've called us out of our sin and despair and death. You have raised us up and seated us with your Son in the heavenly places. And so we hold on and we cling to that, Lord. We cling to your Son. Lord, grow us as we pursue you through the reading of your word, through our fellowship together. Grow us in our how we come to you in prayer, Lord. There's many things, and we know that you desire to do that work in us, and you will be faithful to do it. You will not fail. Lord, allow us to be part of your great mission to see the gospel go around the world. And so we sing, again, Lord, we sing to you being thankful of your great love that you have showed us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's sing and let's stand and sing in response to what we have heard. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. 
If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.